0: I'm delighted to be here for the first International Swadeshi Indology Conference. I'd like to, in my remarks, tell you a little bit about how we got here, why we got here to this event, and where we might uh, go in the future. About uh, 20 years ago, uh, Infinity Foundation started getting interested in understanding how India is studied, So, we gave grants to wherever the bases are studying us. Harvard, we gave grants there. We gave grants to Colombia and so on. And the original thought was that uh, I will fund, we will, the Trinity Foundation will fund places that are studying India in order to encourage them. And if we feel that uh, they should be shifted in a different direction, we will encourage them to do so. Uh, so, Ten years later, I realized that that's not uh, going to materialize. We have to do some of that work ourselves. You cannot outsource to other people to think differently about yourself. Uh, and the investments that the senior endologists have made, they are not going to walk away from those investments. So, it's something we have to do. However, I learned a lot. Uh, in the… Uh, Harvard had… Uh, Harvard started something called Round Roundtable. It was held every year and Infinity Foundation was the funding agency. We funded that. I learned that uh, they took a very interdisciplinary approach. They had uh, not only people who were Sanskrit scholars, they had archaeologists, uh, they had uh, 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 botanists, art historians, uh, they had mathematicians, astronomers, geneticists. They were looking at this is before this DNA uh, based stuff became popular they were at the cutting edge. And I would go there, sit and take notes and raise questions and issues. I was the only person from our point of view sitting there. And I could not get our people interested. The Indians attended in large numbers. They were being invited. But they were all very in a small box. Somebody who knew the text only knew the text. Somebody else was an archaeologist discovering, digging up things. But he did not know how to interpret them. Someone else may be art historian but did not know, you know, Sanskrit. uh, separate partitioned mines, little minds, uh, And uh, 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 so, by, uh, we were just talking earlier said that this probably happened in the British era, I think they probably did. So, this is something which they were putting together. They would take our data, bits and pieces and put it all together and then uh, uh, interpret it their own way and Turn that into the international discourse. I um, I have learned from the Harvard experience that, you know, when you say Indology in the United States, Indology requires several types of disciplines working together. It is not enough to say we have a Sanskrit department here and somewhere we have an archaeology department. It's just not. So, you know, even in the British times, the British were putting the whole thing together. About us, and we were all into little compartments, very ultra compartmentalized. And they were the ones uh, putting it together in terms of in terms of uh, the entire picture. Not only they have the entire picture of India, but world history. They are they are fitting us into a scheme of the world history. You know what happened in Eurasia, what happened here in the Middle East and China. So all we are located. Uh, In a grid that somebody else has put together. This is the first thing I learned. So, to bring this home, to bring this to our own uh, uh, people, our own way of doing it, uh, Infinity Foundation started a conference. It was the first one we held in 2002. And Makaran this morning gave me. uh, He gifted me the. This is the book that came out of that. It is is actually an amazing book. Uh, some, Some of the top in the world, Indian and Westerners are here and we had four days. Uh, I had this mandala idea, inner, outer, past, future, inner being adhyatma, philosophy, Vedant, the inner side, yoga, outer being society, past being the historical view, future being how do we go, where, where, what are the future possibilities. This is a way to bring people from social sciences and discipline, this one, that one, history, methodology, all kind of people together. This is the way we did it. And the idea was we have a Mandala conference series every year. But then we were attracted by an offer from CSDS in Delhi. CSDS is now infamous for leftist hump and a lot of uh, you know, uh, tension going on there. Uh, so, Madhu Kishore from CSDS is, is supposed to be here. She's in the hotel. So, she'll probably be here in a while. Uh, CSDS said we'll do this uh, conference in India. So, we did one. Four or five hundred people came. And new ideas were introduced. Uh, you know, this is what Harvard is doing. This is what we did in… Uh, uh, this, this conference in uh, 2002 was done with uh, Columbia University and Infinity Foundation collaboration in New York State. Uh, Four-day conference. So, we wanted to bring that whole thing to India uh, and we did it once and we were not too satisfied because uh, it seemed that it was very difficult to get a conversation started with, in, with so much uh, anger, tension, political uh, political correctness. Uh, none of that happened in the US. Uh, we were able to talk about all kinds of things, disagree, agree, but it was not like we have been politically correct. So, we, we took a Break for a couple of years and then the CSDS came back and said, okay, let's do it one more time and we'll do it correctly. So we had to another one. And so we, we just sort of lost uh, interest because we weren't able to get traction of uh, consistent output. We weren't able to produce consistent uh, scholarship and, and, and change the course. Now with the new government, hopefully uh, different uh, level of uh, interest and bit more hospitable to our situation. We think the time has come to start and that is why we are starting this Swadishianology series. Uh, The the impetus of uh, doing the first topic on uh, Sheldon Pollock is because uh, we wrote a book. We did a book this year and that book was uh, an urgent one because uh, uh, an MOU had been signed or was about to be signed to uh, become the official representative uh, for Singareni, much and I did not want that happening. I thought at least Shankaracharya uh, should know the other side of the story, and no one had read them, so I wanted to do that in a hurry. And there were other issues, also, which required some urgent attention. And I'm glad to say, since we did that book, many of those projects are put on hold, at least on hold, if not stopped. So at least we you know it did some impact. But it's not enough to just disrupt. We have to do something beyond just disrupting. This takes me to the next topic. The work that Infinity Foundation has been doing can be classified as disruptive and constructive. There is both. You can't do one without the other. If you want to build a garden, if there is too many pests and too many weeds you have to pull them out first and if there is chemical dump and it is toxic somebody has been dumping something you have to remove that. If there is all kinds of abuse that the land has suffered you cannot just cover it up with 1 inch of dirt make it look pretty and plant some garden on it because it won't last so we have we feel that the discourse is that kind of territory it has so much uh, so much abuse that has happened we need to disrupt that and we need to construct new things so there is disruptive and constructive an example of constructive we have done 14 volumes on the history of indian science and technology which is largest of such volumes anybody did. And it has archaeology, history of archaeology, mathematics, history of medicine, history of uh, metallurgy, you know, all these kind of things and more in the pipeline. So the um, purpose of this series is first to correct the this the interpretation of texts because philology and these orientalism, new, new orientalism, all these guys basically take texts and they interpret them. They interpret our itihas or shastras or all, 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 you know, Vedas in their particular way. And we want to take back that sort of adhikar uh, to interpret our own texts through our lens. Then we want to link the texts and the physical elements. This is very important. You see, uh, Mahindra Parvat in Cambodia has been discovered recently by some Australians and Europeans, archaeologists. And it is, they are, they are concluding that until the 12th century it was the world's largest empire. That's huge. Now, we are taught to be headlines here. We ought to have our archaeologists. We are not doing much about it. So it is other people's archaeologists, doing it. But they are saying, okay, this looks like Indra, something like that. Things that are obviously are saying. But you need to be a text expert, you need to be an art historian, you need to have our drishti. Not just Sanskrit but Tamil also perhaps. You need to bring in all sorts of things, all sorts of knowledge. When you see a symbol what does it mean to us is different than what it means to someone else. I was in uh, Turkey uh, three years ago and the Anatolia part of Turkey which is the eastern part towards Asia it is amazing when you go to those museums how much symbolism there is you think this must be from India. And they will tell you this is our, but they do not know how to interpret it. And so, I was, I was uh, kind of telling them that this is lotus, what does lotus mean? What does this thing mean? What does that thing mean? And they were quite interested and they said that no Indian has visited them. They are the museum guys. No Indian has visited them to try and offer this sort of knowledge. I was there on holiday. I was not about to give them a lecture but it was so fascinating that uh, parts of our civilization probably exist in other places. And and, uh, in China, in China there are uh, temples of uh, Hindu deities, even now China, Mongolia. So, you know, we haven't done the full uh, gathering of physical evidence. The physical evidence of archaeology connecting with our text will give us ancient history. The physical evidence of modern society today, whether it is caste, conflict, whatever it is going on, social structures, gender relations, today's what social sciences call, what, what what the social sciences consider to be their turf is to look at physical evidence of society as its living and then interpret it according to their theory. But we have to interpret those things in light of our shastra. You see, why aren't we doing earth shastra and uh economic theory, political theory type of discussion, we would like to in the in the series do such topics. We would like to take on dharmashastras Shastras, put them in the context of modern experience. So it's not just the old experience of our through archaeology that we need to bring in, but the modern experience of society that also needs to be needs to be brought in. So uh, the history of indology is a very fascinating uh, topic. I have an unpublished book uh, on the history of Indology and I looked at German Indology, British Indology, French Indology, Russian Indology also, Danish Indology, Danish East India Company and the Dutch East India Company, some older than the British East India Company. Some of the oldest, a guy at Harvard that you don't Many of you don't like uh, with Michael Witzel helped me uh, in many ways. Also, uh, he gave me a glimpse of a botany book in their archive, which is somewhere in the 1500s, European language, by the not the British. I think it was the Danish or Dutch. East, Danish East India Company, in which. In the first page, it is written in their language, in the European, but in the first page it says this is a translation of such and such word in Malayali. So, it is the 1500s. European origin of botany is, is what uh, uh, we call spice trade. It is not spice as in garam masala. You know? It is herbs, medicines, all that they call spice trade but actually it is herbs, medicines. Botany, plant science—a huge amount of that from India, particularly from the south. So, I'm I'm still looking to get a scan of that book. I'm not yet succeeded in getting that. Uh, There is a, there is a. uh, When you look at ideology, you have to look at more than you know. We know a few names, you know, William Jones and Max Miller, but uh, you will find that uh, the British were uh, making. Their policy, political policies to some extent based on these uh, in scholars of India. And they went through many phases. There were the evangelists. The East India Company didn't like the evangelists because they wanted to convert very aggressively and the East India Company wanted to make money. And they thought this would rock the boat. It's better to just leave that alone and not that too much. So, there was always in the British Parliament they had fights between evangelists and uh, East India Company people. So, East India Company people had scholars called Anglicists. They were Indologists. Then they were Utilitarians. Then they were Liberals. These are technical terms they gave to themselves because after all it went on for a very long time. So, it is not like all of them were called one simple Orientalist. They are broken down into many categories. Then there were race scientists like Lord Risley. And others who started the uh, census, they call themselves race scientists. They were looking for scientific study of races and hence the caste type of thing. Now, all this happened and we have not developed our own approach to the history of knowledge. And this is the British part and the German part. What were they looking for is different than what the British were looking for. Then there is the French part. They were looking for their own. And then, of course, uh, the Americans renamed it South Asian Studies. But it is the ideology sort of thing. Now, um, if you look at the under the British era, colonial era, the ideology was not dominated by any significant Marxist lens. You might wonder why. One theory might be that uh, having a class warfare would not be in the interest of the colonial ruler. You would not want to say, okay, let's have Marxist you know, class struggle, because after all, you're the ruler. You want it to be just, you know, let things continue. Uh, so, but Marxism entered later, the study of India, highly left-oriented, entered later, and uh, Nehruvian socialism kind of lens, you know, has uh, took over. Then postmodernism. You know, every time the westerners went through a revolution for their own reasons, for their own whatever was going on in their, uh, in their part of the world, they went on through a revolution and came up with new theories, uh, we imported those theories and started applying them to us. So, when they had Marxism in fashion, we were, became, we were imported it here. When it became postmodernism, we said, okay, everybody should, this is the latest way to become fashionable and get grants and fly around the world and become postmodernist. When it became post colonial theory, all these were, these fashionable theories in India were not invented in India. They're just, every one of them is invented somewhere else. So the, the left is a sort of an import mechanism of whatever is the latest fashionable thing uh, in the West. So the kind of get a franchise to market it in India and apply it to Indians. And rather than creating our own theories, our own social theories, I agree we have, we can't just be stuck in the old theories. I'm not proposing that. But I'm saying, we have bright people. We are capable of creating, innovating our own stuff. But we have there isn't an Indian-made in India modern social theory. Even JN Mother, who's considered a very progressive, very important Indian person, I mean, he's hardly on the world stage as one of the top social theorists of the world, considering that he's a prominent Indian and India is such a rich uh, society with so much happening here. You would think that uh, among the top ten uh, social theorists in the world good number of them ought to be Indians because we ought to be contributing to that but we are not, we are just importing. So in this historical context now comes a new genre of Indology which is brought by Sheldon Pollock. It's different just like you know when the evangelists were fighting against the Anglicists and then the utilitarians came and then uh, the John Stuart Mill started liberals, liberalism. Uh, each one is very different from the other. Similarly, what he has brought is very different. And a, and a generic critique of a post-colonial is not enough to satisfy. And this is why this is one of the things I have emphasized in my book is how Pollock is new, innovative, he's a brilliant man, he's done hard work, he's done something original. He's brought a combination of different European things, a different permutation, and applied it to India and with tremendous knowledge of Sanskrit. Okay. So, this is, now, they are, now they, are, they are, they are training a large number of Sanskrit scholars. You know, in uh, Columbia University they got so many Sanskrit scholars, uh, in uh, Chicago, from India also, and they are giving them, uh, the, the, this is a Marxist, leftist, um, postmodernist kind of an ideological foundation with this new polar theory in it, teach them Sanskrit, send them back here. So, you have, you, you are finding a flood of uh, made-in-USA Sanskritists right here. This is uh, this is quite a fashionable fashionable thing. There is a seminary near my house, Princeton Theological Seminary, one of the famous ones in the world, very large, huge. I mean, you go there and look at the campus, my god, they are, the library is so beautiful. I mean, a lot of money they You know, they have a very large department of mm-hmm. Indology. So, they, have, they, can chant, they can chant mantras, they can sing bhajans, they can give you all kind of, you know, Bharatanatyam performances but they are studying us, that is the motive. But the irony is that so many Indians come and they feel very impressed, they say they are really helping us. They, they really did a good job. They Wearing the sari so nicely, they are wearing the dhoti so nicely. See, that's all part of training. That's all part of training. There is a phrase, there is an expression called going native. The British use that and the Americans use it. When you're being trained as an anthropologist to go to a village, learn the language and dress like them and be like them, to pick up the knowledge, have the same, have no difference, be like, you know, let them invite you in uh, that way. That's part of the training, but you're supposed to keep your identity. It's like you have two levels of consciousness. Who I am is I'm this American guy or British guy or whatever, and what's the role I'm playing? It's like when you're acting on the stage, you don't forget that you know you got to go home and you know eat food and do your uh, pay your bills, whatever your life at home. Also, you have to keep in mind. So this business of dual consciousness as the Westerner and then playing this role is taught. In the late 1700s and early 1800s the British had set up, the British were sending these East India Company young men to India and in India they would learn whichever district they were appointed in they would learn the language and the who's, what caste and what religion and what to do and what to do. But they found that a lot of them were going native, means they were actually turned into and they would marry a local person a lot of the British East India Company officials in in those decades uh, were going native in the sense they would uh, uh, not just dress up to play the role but they would actually want to become Indian. Some of them would convert, some of them would marry an Indian girl and uh, not have much to do with the East India Company or criticize them. In other words, genuinely shift, they called it going native and, and they were very concerned about too many of their boys going native. So, then they decided to set up a network of Indology colleges in Britain and teach them there first, teach them the foundation there and then send them to India so they won't go native because they are rooted. You see the brilliance, how it evolved. When the Taliban lost in Afghanistan, when the U.S. attacked and defeated the Taliban uh, government, an interesting development was that Yale University announced that they have hired a former Taliban minister on their visit, as a visiting professor to come and teach them about the Taliban thinking. And people criticized that, how oh, why are you promoting, why are you advocating their ideas and they, they said no, no, he will teach the class that is already very grounded. They have learned about the founding fathers, they have learned about the American Western classics, they are really solidly patriotic Now it's like, I'm translating, but it's like we're doing the full function. We're letting them come and teach so we really know how they're thinking. That's how uh, dual level of consciousness works. You cannot, unless you created a foundation of yourself, your own idea of who I am, you cannot let this young person go off and just learn this, learn that. Because a lot of people say, why can't we just go and learn all those things? The point is, we are sending people to do that, but they never come back. Ideologically, they never come back. They are just gone because they are not founded. They are not grounded very nicely. So, this is why I decided that what we need is people who are already grounded like traditional scholars. We have to get them uh, to learn understand uh, the other the other disciplines because they are, they are less likely to just run away. because they are so grounded. That is my hope at least. That maybe they will run away but at least I can hope that. It is not proving to be easy. I'll tell you why it's not going to be easy. I'm finding that while we are critical of the others, we also need to be reflective about our own problems. And of course, we know media problem and this and that. But I'm talking about our serious scholars and thinkers. There is a lot of uh, uh, lot of instances where our own traditional scholars who ought to be joining and Helping Professor Kallen and his enterprise are not doing so, and Professor Cannon knows. And this is very sad because some of them, I don't know, maybe they're jealous mm-hmm. that somebody else has found these problems, and they are embarrassed, it's embarrassing them that they have been, they are now suddenly caught having done nothing about it. Like Professor Kallen says, "Why have we done this for so long?" So there are certain people who feel that maybe uh, they are being put on the spot because they have been going around saying great things. And now, all of a sudden, somebody from nowhere comes and says, well, you guys don't really know what's going on, you see. So, to some extent, it could be that. To some extent, it could be that they just don't have the habit of so much hard work, like he said. Rigor. Rigor, hard work. Uh, It's easy to be bombastic and polemic. So, easy to do that. But really take uh, point by point and really deconstruct it and analyze it and give a strong intellectual response takes a lot more. And we do not have that. uh, it's not that uh, easy to find so many people. So, in the call for papers which Colonel uh, sent out, I am very glad he made a very high standard. We are not looking for polemics. We are not looking for just very generic criticism of you know West and all that. We are not looking for that. We are looking for very specific Pakshin. You have to read particular things. He supplied them with the reading material also. Amazingly I found that uh, there was hardly any Sanskrit university. I went to the major one in Chennai, I went to the major one in, uh, in, in Karnataka, in Bangalore, I went to a few in North, you know. Hardly anyone had the complete works of Pollock. Or any of the other major Western Indologists. They are coming and writing. They are using our people, hiring some people, picking up manuscripts, taking it back, publishing it, all this. Our people never read it. We don't read that. We don't even have it in the library. So this is a this is a very sad kind of an abandonment of uh, responsibility that we are suffering. So the uh, and then there is the a, a kind of a stampede of people very eager to sort of copy paste pick here there and make a little paper blog go out there and a lot of that action overaction, over action uh, over you know passion. But not the tapasya needed to uh, do some original work. And finally, I would say there are people who are very, very good. Mm -hmm. In all these respects, they are very, very good. But not uh, courageous enough to stand, stick their neck out. They will say things in private and they will say, Rajiv, don't quote me. You know, like that part. So, I, uh, I want to say the following. I lived in the U.S. since 1970. So, 46 years. I think the Americans are very proud people, very open-minded people, very fair people. But you have to, you have to make your case. I mean, I never found that uh, they would stop a person from arguing his point of view. His identity, his ethnicity, his race, his religion is all open. You can, people stand up and argue their point of view. We just aren't the type who do that. You see, it's up to us to do that, and there is no law. Not only no law against it; there is no sort of. Uh, it's not even considered disrespectful. It's self-censorship. We've censored ourselves. We put ourselves. We built a glass ceiling and put ourselves underneath that. Maybe it's some long-term colonial mentality that we are programmed with. It is not that they have required it. Believe me, they have not required it. It is. It is us who have uh, uh, that fear, uh, because I find that. Uh, Other cultures are very audacious, very uh, assertive uh, and and it is considered, uh, this kind of thing is considered okay. So, to be different, to to, uh, explain who we are in different terms, to reclaim yoga as Hindu, to reclaim our meditation that has gone off everywhere and say, well, this is based on these these shastras, there is nothing disrespectful at all about it. Uh, To say that we have a certain experience of our iktihas and we have a certain idea of our deity is not exactly how you look at it. Our drishti is different is perfectly fine from the American point of view. It is our people who have this fear that maybe we are doing something incorrect. I know uh, Japanese I used to uh, lead trade delegations for my, uh, uh, when I worked in a multinational company to various countries, including China, including Japan. They were so Clear. The Japanese is so clear about uh, self-respect, absolutely clear about self-respect. And you will never fool around with some of their protocols. The Americans, we will be taught that there are certain traditions, symbols, cultures you must respect, we taught management courses how to make sure because they are very clear. And so the Japanese have huge, uh, they are put up on a pedestal as a great civilization in the eyes of the West and now China because China is very strong. So, being strong is not something that they will get angry at you. They will probably respect you more. This is very important. Very, very important. I will conclude by suggesting just a few uh, ideas on where we might go with this conference series. What are some of the topics that I want to think about. So, these are not in any order and they are not, uh, we need to have a a steering committee or something afterwards to decide. But you know, the whole Hindu-Buddhist relationship. Uh, needs to be discussed because it has been taken apart as tension and violence and all that. It is not true. We need to redo this. We need to bring Buddhists also. We need to redo this whole thing ourselves. I have a proper conference on that. Then this whole caste Jati Varna, this whole idea of caste Jati Varna, what it has been in different times in history, what it is now, what is distorted, what is not distorted. You know, we need to have, I mean, there are real social problems we can't hide, we don't want to ignore, but we don't want to over exaggerate them and uh, and hold the whole Hindu tradition accountable and, uh, you know, try to throw it out which is what some people would like to do. So, I think we need to have a responsible, balanced, open-minded discourse on this and bring opponents also. And let's have some of these. Then uh, the whole idea of secularizing Secularizing the sacred. You know, Bharatanatyam does becoming secularized quite fashionably. We know that. If you go to Mahabalipuram and the rock art, the rock carvings, uh, our mandirs, there is deities, there is puja I have a video of a man doing in the middle of the night doing aarti and uh, I interviewed him, Somebody said he did. This is uh, aim for Seva we were from sent me there for all this during the tsunami. Uh, And this person is explaining that he is fourth or fifth generation and uh, his uh, his, uh, family have been doing puja here. They were pujaris. But the archaeological survey of India, the moment it takes, the moment something becomes classified as an archaeological site, it is declared secular, you are not allowed, it is illegal to do this. You know, there is something in Shingeri. I don't know how many of you know this, but in Shingeri I was told, there is a certain deity, you can't do puja there. I mean, you've seen that. Yeah. You can't do puja there because it is declared an archaeological site and it would be a violation of the secularism because it covered property archaeological site. So, for those who have so much uh, devotion and so much shraddha, they made a separate uh, deity that you do the puja. There. In it. So, you know, we are talking about uh, the removal of the sacred uh, and I have a whole thing, a whole separate discussion on Kumbh Bela, removal of the sacred. From the Mela happening, okay, that is a, it's a carnival, it's a festival. Uh, so on that basis, soon there might be a Pepsi Cola tent and a airtel, and it could be people just selling whatever they want to sell, you know. So uh, the secularisation is a, is a very serious problem, the, and the reason I, I, it's relevant to Pollockov Paul is because he ta- he talks about the removal of the sacred from Kavya. In fact, that is a very important part of what he calls liberation chronology. Uh, Political pathology is a diagnostic. Liberative pathology is a treatment. How to liberate you from basically the sacredness. Because that is considered abusive. Then there is this concept of Sanskrit, history of Sanskrit. How and why did Sanskrit spread? uh, The other camp agrees that there was no violence spread. It was not like the Roman Empire spreading back then. But how and why, what was the mechanism by which it spread? See, so they have a whole theory called the aestheticization of power, which I I totally refute and don't agree with. But we need to create an alternative theory. What is the history of Sanskrit? How it spread? How did it go there, there, all these things. Who took it? For what reason? I don't believe it was the king's assertion of power uh, through non-violent but kind of psychological mental control, kind of mind control system. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that's the that way. Um, and, you know, we need to take the... Arthashastra, Dharmashastra and and see, you know, how they compare with modern social theories, to what extent do they need to be adapted and and updated. And then there are other favourite topics I have like Hindu phobia. My next book, which is being launched uh, Sunday by Swami in Delhi, called Academic Hindu phobia. That's a topic of uh, rebuttal. Because a lot of uh, Hindu phobia for gurus, for uh, symbols, for festivals, for you know, all kind of stuff, uh, and that has to be that's a topic also. And how how about a conference on something like rashtra? What is rashtra? What how does it cha- how does it compare with the Western nation state? And what are the effects of having uh, adopted nation states? As a benchmark, and we're evaluating ourselves and trying to become compliant with nation states. What does it do? I mean, what do we want to be compromised by doing that. And, and how would a ratchet be different? You see. So these are some of the thoughts. And I just wanted to uh, uh, close by thanking uh, all of you for being here. There's too many individuals to name, but so many persons have helped in so many different ways. Frankly, I'm quite amazed. I was here in February. And the concept of hatched right here. Vijaya was there, Kandan was there, you know, various people here were there, Shalvi, various people. And we said, let's do this. And this became the place. And IIT Madras kindly offered that they hosted. In a sense, it's, a, it's kind of ironic, but it's a nice thing that Tamil Nadu is the ground zero for our start starting this. Because <laughs> you see, because it, uh, it's kind of reached the problem has reached a climax in this place, probably more than anything. <laughs> well. Although it has metastasized and <coughs> gone through the northeast, <coughs> now the the fragmentation, the break like breaking India forces, all these kind of people, they are also in the northeast in a very big way. They have been in Kashmir, we already know, and various other places in India. Maybe Bangladesh is over for to Bengal. So, we are having these problems. And my theory is that before something becomes physical, before the, there is a physical separatism and all that, ideologically a generation has been raised to think differently and not to call themselves Indians. And you, you know, you go to northeast, they, they say we are not Indians. You go to Kashmir, they say that. So, a generation or two have been trained ideologically, intellectually through, the, through these uh, all these NGOs. NGOs are spreading this uh, negative ideology. Uh, their job is to take the, what the scholars have been spinning and to put it into the common man in their way, in their ideologically planted all over the place. And then that generation when they grow up, it's easy to uh, convince them that whatever is your problem is the fault of the nation. Yeah, whether you're unemployment or somebody got killed, somebody had a rape, somebody had a problem, economic drought, whatever. So I feel that the long term unity of India Requires that we take this whole civilizational study seriously. We stop outsourcing it. We stop funding others. We stop abandoning it. We treat it as ours for Every single one of them, us. And uh, not only should there be jobs, you need jobs because uh, to attract good people, you need careers. So not only you need academic careers, but maybe in media, you need to have such people who are experts, and also corporate. Maybe large corporate entity ought to have somebody who's a civilizational cultural dharmic ethics kind of a person who can put these ideas into the corporate ethos also. So, uh, with that I will close and I want to thank all of you for sharing this moment with us. Thank you.